The Mishnah tells us that we could technically start to read the Megillah from the 11th of Adar, and it does seem strange that the Mishnah should first talk about the time that you could technically read the Megillah instead of starting with the time that you're obligated to read the Megillah. But there's a secret in that 11th of the month, which relates to the secret of Hashem's name being absent from the Megillah, which relates to Moshe's name being absent from the parasha of Tetzaveh. All three of these things teach us a dimension of our experience of Judaism, our connection to Hashem and Hashem's manifestation that we normally might not have noticed. So we're going to start off looking at the connection between the Shabbos that precedes Purim and the story. The whole Shabbos, yes, Shaykhus, every Shabbos is related, not only to the days that build up to that Shabbos, in other words, the preceding week, which is obvious in the name that it's the seventh day, implying that it's related to the preceding six days. But what else is relevant about Shabbos is it has a bearing on the week that's coming. Like the Zohra all six days of the week that follow Shabbos are all blessed from the seventh day, which obviously is the Shabbos prior to the coming week. So let's plug that into this Shabbos. The connection between this Shabbos and the coming week is even stronger than usual based on what we're required to read on the Shabbos part of the Torah reading, which is we read because this is the Shabbos that is closest to Purim. And the idea is that remembering the deeds of Amalek is directly related to the story of Purim, who of course had a villain who was from Amalek. In fact, it's such a connection to Purim that the Torah reading on Purim Day itself is also about the original story of Amalek's ambush, the famous Vayovoy Amalek at the end of Pashas B'Shalach. Valkriyas Pashas Zohar used to be Gemorah, and the Gemorah Megillah tells us that reading Pashas Zohar on the Shabbos before Purim creates the system known as Zechira Kodemus Lassir Purim. It fulfills what the Megillah says, these are days that have to be remembered. So you remember them with Pashas Zohar on Shabbos. Him, and they have to be done through the actions of Purim itself. Now that's every year of Hashanah. Zoy the year the Rebbe said the Sicha Shaychas the Shabbos Zoy Mehashavua Habo. The connection between this Shabbos and the coming week over Ikli Meha Purim and specifically to Purim. It be Yesus says Mehashavishar Shanim is unique more so than in other years. And the reason being because Bishanah Zoy Cholah Hashabbos Biyom Yud Aleph Lechidish Adar because Pashas Tetzaveh Pashas Zocher lands up coinciding with the eleventh of Adar. And why is that significant? Because the Yom Zehu Has Cholas Asmana Roi Likriyas Megillah because the eleventh of Adar is the first day that is relevant for. In Megillah, it is about Mishnah, as the first Mishnah in Megillah tells us, the Megillah Nikres, the days when the Megillah is read, are Biyodalef, Biyodbeis, Biyodgimel, Biyodalef, Betesvav, a range from the 11th to the 15th of month of the month, and then explains how that could be Shakforim, Maktimim, Liyom, Maknisa, that people who lived in little villages would read the Megillah earlier on those market days that they would get together, which would be on a Monday or a Thursday. And then the Gemara goes on to explain how the very earliest time that their market day could be when you would be able to read Megillah would be the 11th of the month. Now that's interesting. The, the rule that you're allowed to read the Megillah on the 11th of Adar is doesn't only apply to the good old days 
when the Jewish people all lived in Israel, and only then would it be a possibility of the villagers reading on the 11th. And it actually has relevance in our lives as well. If a person is going on a sea cruise, or traveling in a caravan, these were lengthy journeys, and doesn't have a Megillah that he could take with him, then you read the Megillah, either the 13th, 12th, or even the 11th of the month, without a bracha. Now, the truth is, you could actually read the Megillah technically throughout the whole month of Adar. In a worst-case scenario, you'd be allowed, actually the whole month of Adar is suitable to read the Megillah. And that's not only a suggestion, but it's Kamesha Posa The Ramah says that is our custom obviously without a brocha, if you are unable to read at the right time. But nonetheless, we're going to show that there's a major distinction between reading the Megillah on the 11th, 12th, or 13th of the month versus any other day in order where in a, if you're in a jam, you could also read the Megillah. And we'll understand later what this, this, what this distinction is. But let's bear in mind practically that in nowadays you would only read the Megillah any day outside of Purim in an emergency. Just to clarify how, so to speak, Bidi Evet it is to read the Megillah on these other days, the, the law that they were allowed to read the Megillah earlier in the villages, it was an allowance as the Gemara tells us, that the rabbis extended a special uh, opportunity to them and an allowance for them to be able to read the Megillah earlier. Or the other expression is, they were more lenient with people living in the villages. So whichever way you look at it, the correct time to read the Megillah, no matter what a person's circumstances are, is only on the 14th or the 15th Purim or Shushan Purim. And nevertheless, even though any time besides the 14th and the 15th is second best, nevertheless, if you chose to read the Megillah on the 11th, 12th, or 13th of the month, it would be much more connected to Purim than any other day of the month, and we'll explain why. Now, before we can explain that, let's ask a very glaring question about this Mishnah. But you want to understand what the special nature of the 11th, 12th, and 13th of Adar are, is compared to any other day of the month. So let's look at this glaring question. We need to understand Habir Mishnah, why it is that the Mishnah says Megillah Nikres, that the Megillah is read, from the 11th to the 15th. As we've illustrated, to read the Megillah on any date other than the 14th or the 15th is an allowance of the rabbis. Which was originally instituted in certain circumstances and only for certain people, those in the villages. Why then did the, did the Tana of the Mishnah start with the least likely or least appropriate date to read the Megillah? Why didn't he go straight to the most important times? You read the Megillah on the 14th and the 15th. And then say, and there's a possibility of the 13th, 12th, and the 11th. Now you might think it's because he wants to go chronologically. The 11th to the 15th is the chronological order of the month. 
Still, that's not the purpose of the Mishnah. The objective of the Mishnah is to tell us how you do the mitzvah, not how the month works. So it doesn't really make sense. The way the Mitzvah should work is it should first tell us the primary mitzvah of reading the Megillah, which is on the 14th or the 15th, and then speak about second best. Especially when you think about it, that the Tanakh also could have followed a chronological, a reverse chronological order, which would have made more sense in terms of halachic priority. Start from the end and work your way back. Which, by the way, the rest of the Mishnah actually does. When the Tana explains how you get to these different dates, he starts with how you get to the 15th, which is those cities that had walls since the time of Yehoshua. They read on the 15th. Then, then he goes to the 14th, which is reserved for the largest cities. And then he talks about the small villages who could be reading on the 11th, 12th, or 13th. So if that's how the Mishnah is going to play it out, why start by first telling us the 11th? And one other thing about the Mishnah that does seem to be odd, why does the Tana use the expression, the Megillah is read in the passive, as if to say this is something about the Megillah, instead of saying the more proactive voice, which would relate to our personal obligation, you read the Megillah on these dates. So those two questions, why he starts with the 11th, which is a second best, and why he speaks in the passive voice, illustrating almost as if it's about the Megillah rather than about the person, those will be the clues for us to understand what is so special about those dates with regards to Purim, more so than any other day in order. So let's first answer these questions. The very fact that the Tana started from the 11th and then worked his way back, it's because he wanted to emphasize that even though fundamentally the reason to read the Megillah on any of those dates, it's because the Chachomim wanted to create an allowance for the people living in the villages, and the reason for that allowance was that they should be in a position to provide food and drink to those who live in the big cities. For obvious reasons, living in the cities, they weren't agricultural communities. Living in the villages, they were. So they were the farmers and they would then bring the food, the produce, to the people in the city and they needed to have that allowance for Purim so that they could do that. In fact, the Gemara takes it one step further. It wasn't an allowance because they needed to be able to do these jobs. But it's actually almost a reward for the fact that they are the suppliers of food and drink to their brethren in the cities. Therefore, we actually give them extra time for Purim. It's a reward. And the interesting thing is that even though it's a heter and it's just an allowance, the Tana wants us to know it's not second fiddle. It's actually considered a central part of the whole Purim experience for these people. Let's put it in different words. Even though the logic says the reason that these extra dates were added to the range of when you could read the Megillah is to suit the needs of people, 
The fact that the allowance was made for those people actually changed the nature of the Megillah itself. That now the 11th, 12th or 13th becomes a valid time for the Megillah to be read. Not only to accommodate those people, but it becomes an appropriate time for the Megillah to be read. In other words, should be by reading the Megillah in a village on the 11th, 12th, or 13th. Not only does that allow the villagers to discharge their personal responsibility to read the Megillah, but it's actually considered like the Megillah was read, not just that those people were satisfied. They weren't just given an opportunity to experience Purim, it becomes like a real Purim for them. Like the Gemara indicates that the people of Anshet Knesset Agdola, which were being that they were the ones who came up with the concept of reading the Megillah annually, at the same time they initiated the principle of reading the Megillah, they also created this calendar, which allowed the 11th, 12th, and 13th. In other words, it's part of Megillah Nikres, it's part of how the Megillah works, which explains, Megillah Nikres. That's why the Tana says the Megillah is read on these dates. Rather than saying we could read the Megillah. Because if we said we could read the Megillah, it would sound like it's a favor for us. It's not the actual fundamental of reading the Megillah. By saying the Megillah is read, we're emphasizing this is an appropriate time for the Megillah. Which would then explain why the Tana first starts with the lesser known or lesser appropriate dates, the 11th, 12th, and 13th, to tell us that if you do live in a village and you do read the Megillah on these dates, it's not just that you were given an allowance for you people so that you could have an experience of Purim. And the Megillah Nikres, but rather that is how the Megillah is read. That's part of the original enactment of the Megillah. Without having to focus on the person and saying it's about them. In other words, the, the Tana wants to emphasize for us that it's part of the laws of how the Megillah operates, that it includes these dates. You say to me, so you can actually take it one step beyond that. The Gemara points out to us that the Anshay Knesset Agdola, in the way that they composed the Megillah, alluded to the fact that there are all of these times. Because it says, that the decree was that we should fulfill all the requirements and celebrations of Purim in their times. In the plural, which the Gemara says means that originally, the Anshe Knesset originally created various times for the celebration of Purim. Which implies that doesn't mean that just the 11th, 12th, and 13th are potential times for those who need to read the Megillah outside of the original date of Purim. But rather to say, it's part of Zmanehem. They belong, the 11th, 12th, and 13th, with regards to those people living in those villages, is identical to the 14th or 15th of Adar for the rest of us. They're all under the same collective term, the times of the Megillah. That means it's not like, for example, if a person missed a korban and then you've got seven days after Yontav to be able, well, after Shavuos, let's say, for example, to be able to catch it up. 
it's not a catch-up. It's part of the original mitzvah. Or Yismanim Acherim, and it's not like the one opinion who says that it's a, it's a different time. There's the time of Purim, and then there's an, an, a different kind of unrelated time given to the villagers. The Gemara wants us to know that it's part of the original time that was allocated for the Megillah. So that's already shifted our view. The 11th, 12th, and 13th of Adar are actually part of the original Purim experience, the Purim laws. They accommodate the villages on those dates. So therefore, Now we can see a very great distinction between reading the Megillah on the 11th, 12th, or 13th of the month or reading it any other day of the month because technically the whole month is a suitable time for the Megillah. And that has a practical application. So if a person is going away on a journey and they're not going to be able to hear the Megillah, ideally they should read the Megillah for themselves without a brocha. It's a debate if somebody else can read it for them. But for themselves on the 11th, 12th or 13th rather than any other day of the month. Because the concept that you could re- read the Megillah any day of the month of Adar, that that the Yerushalmi derives from the Pasuk that says that the entire month was transformed from a time of pain and anguish into a time of joy. In other words, the Gemara says that means all month long there is the potential and the actually the obligation under the circumstances for an individual to fulfill the obligation that rests on him to celebrate Purim. But the time of the other dates outside of the 11th to the 15th, the time doesn't become a time of Purim just because somebody has to fulfill their obligation to read the Megillah. Nobody is going to suggest that the other days of the month of Adar are actual suitable times to read the Megillah. They're not. They just There's a way that we can create a, a facilitation for the person who's not going to be able to read the Megillah. So you personally can do it on those dates. And that would have a practical application in Allah if you have to weigh up two mitzvahs that both are what we call mitzvah veris. If you don't do it now, you're going to lose the opportunity. So, let's say that somebody has another mitzvah they have to do, besides the Megillah. That has to be done today, whatever that mitzvah might be. Let's say it's giving a bris to a child. Which one takes precedence? So if it's anywhere from the beginning till the 10th, inclusive of the month of Adar, well, then you've got to prioritize the other mitzvah that is not the Megillah that belongs at that particular time. But if it's already the 11th, 12th, or 13th of the month, then actually there'd be a good argument to say you need to prioritize reading the Megillah. So now, we've just discovered something about the Megillah which is unique. That there are days that are not actually part of the original story of Purim and not really spoken about in the Megillah as times to read the Megillah or to celebrate Purim. And yet, they are transformed from their original neutral state into a Purim state. Because we're going to say the reason that happens is because it fits the nature of the whole Megillah, whether we're talking about how the Megillah was written or how we get to read it. 
It all has the same common denominator, something which wasn't originally going to be a particular way of holiness or involvement, becomes. What's, what do we mean by that? Writing the Megillah is unlike any of the other 24 books of Tanakh. Right? Certainly not like the Nevim and definitely not like the Chumash. Because all the other books, there was a direct instruction from Hashem, write this book. Moshe Rabbeinu, write the Torah. So and so, write down your Nevoas. But how did the Megillah come to be written? Not because Hashem said to Mordechai and Esther, write the Megillah. To the contrary. Esther went to the Anshay Knesset Sagadola and requested to have her story recorded for posterity. And the Gemara records that not everybody was on board straight away between the Anshay Knesset Sagadola. And she had to kind of argue her case. And the truth is that's not only relevant to the Megillah, it's relevant to the whole holiday. The whole concept of having a Yom Tov called Purim in which you read the Megillah. That was also because Esther approached Dan Knesset HaGadolah and asked for them to, to create a Yom Tov. And there was debate about that too. So what's unique about Purim is it didn't happen automatically and it certainly didn't happen top down. It was facilitated because of the request of Esther herself. So prior to Esther's request, was there Yom Tov Purim? No. Was there Megillah? No. Now what about after the fact? Once the Megillah was written, it's one of the 24 books of Tanakh as holy as any as holy as Mishlei or uh, whatever the Tehillim Ksuvim in fact not only is the Megillah equal to all of them but actually has an advantage over them as we know the Rambam tells us that that actually the books of Nach are going to be totally over, overwhelmed when Moshiach comes they'll become so to speak bottle null and void except for Esther so isn't that interesting Esther wasn't originally going to be part of Tanakh she had a fight to be included in Tanakh once she's included in Tanakh her book outdoes all the other books so the Rambam is talking about the significance of the book as a book. And the Rambam says it applies to whether we'll read the book. Maybe we will no longer read the other Sifrei Nach in a public forum, but the Megillah Sester we always will. So isn't that fascinating? You've got a part of Tanakh that wasn't going to be part of Tanakh until there was a push by the protagonist Esther to make it happen. And then it becomes the super book of Tanakh. So in the same way you've got these days, you'd out of your basic human. They were never meant to be part of Purim because nothing happened on those days. And yet, Zmanehem, in the story of the creation of the holiday of Purim, they are schlepped in and they're transformed into not just days when you and I would be permitted to read the Megillah, but they become days that are Purim days. they actually days of Megillah Nikres, when the Megillah deserves to be read. So we're going to see the same message and probably an insight into the message from the style in which the Megillah was written, which is unique and unlike any other book of Tanakh. A book of Tanakh where you don't have Hashem's name mentioned. Now, the simple reason for that is pragmatic. 
It would seem that it's because of a pragmatic reason, and therefore actually Megillah Sester is a little bit lesser than the other books of Tanakh. It's because the Persians were going to translate and include Esther as part of their chronicles. And they served obviously their pagan gods. And they were going to replace Hashem's name with the name of their deities. Therefore, Therefore, it's out of respect to the Ebishter that we left Ebishter out of the Megillah, which would sound like the Megillah is missing because of circumstance, because of the potential bad circumstances. The Megillah is less than the other books of Tanakh because Hashem's name is not there. That's Pshat. But now we're going to look from a deeper perspective. The way Hasidus explains it flips that story on its head. We also know the fact that there are no technically holy names of Hashem, only hints at Hashem, Ha-Melech, and so forth. On a deeper level, that implies it's because the experience of Megillah and what the Megillah conveys is a dimension of Hashem that's beyond names, can't be given a name. A dimension of godliness that is beyond even the holiest seven names. To put it into the Alter Rebbe's words, paraphrasing from the Zohar, that this is a name that cannot be alluded to, cannot be captured in any hint, in any word, in any, in any stroke. It's Hashem as Hashem is. And by the way, that's where we know very famously the Gemara tells us, what is the source in the Torah in Chumash for the fact that there should be Megillah Esther? And obviously everything has to be sourced in the Chumash. And it says famously, that Debesha says, I will hide my face at some point in the future. And that, of course, relates to Esther. Chsidus explains, the concealment within the Megillah, like, for example, the fact that Hashem's name is not mentioned and that the story all happens uh, cloaked. The haster, aster, comes from anoichi, which is matzmus and muhusi from the fact that it's a direct connection to Hashem's essence. Which cannot be contained or defined or conveyed. Not even by using the great names of Hashem, even the greatest name of Hashem, Yudke Vavke. In other words, this concept, the absence of divine names in the Megillah, it's not because there's something lacking in the Megillah, it's because the Megillah is plugged directly into Hashem's essence and no name can grasp Hashem's essence, so therefore no name could be expressed in the Megillah. Now that we know that that's how Purim works, that Purim reaches straight into Hashem's essence and therefore speaks a language that is beyond what appears openly and obviously to be holiness, that will explain why the Mishnah first starts by talking about the possibility of Megillah on the 11th of the month before getting to the most important dates, the 14th and 15th. Yes, we've already explained that by doing this, the Tana illustrates to us that the 11th, 12th, and 13th are not only in case of emergency, but they're actually considered days for the Megillah. I will save, save. Nobody is going to suggest that the 11th, 12th, and 13th of Adar is in any way like Purim itself or Shushan Purim. 
And therefore, and so really, the Tana still, even though he could have illustrated to us that these days are equally important, he still could have started by telling us the Megiddo is read on the 15th or the 14th, and then, it's because there's something unique about reading the Megillah on the 11th of Adar and what that represents, which is the reading of the Megillah that belongs to the so-called villages. There's something in that that speaks to the heart of what the Megillah is all about. And in order to understand that, we're going to look at the three different geographical possibilities of the Megillah and how they represent three different spiritual realities and three different ways that we could serve the The explanation is this. The three ways that the possible t- dates of reading the Megillah are divided are Krochim, those cities that are walled since the time of Yeshua, Ayores Gedolos, the big developed cities, the urban environment, Ukfarim and the village, the agricultural environment. Each one of those three represents something in spirituality and something in how we serve Hashem. We'll talk about the spiritual very briefly. A walled city, that's that represents when a person's service of Hashem is completely safe and protected. Complete immunity against any invasion of any inappropriate thoughts, behaviors, or attitudes. So that's like the ultimate state, right? A, an urban environment that expresses that expresses somebody who is turning their environment into a home for Hashem. It's an urban environment. It's suitable for Ish, which refers to Hashem, to settle. And you make it suitable for Hashem because you become, so to speak, an urbanite. If you're an urbanite, you don't have to plow and plant. And then wait until your produce actually grows. And only then could you use it. This is a person who has, so to speak, elements that are ready and ripe for godliness. So you can turn it into Hashem's city relatively easy. Easily. So that implies somebody who's more advanced spiritually, or the world they live in is more advanced spirituality. And then Kfar, you have somebody who's a villager. That's somebody who really has to break through the hard surface of the concealment of the world, like a person has to plow the hard earth. And only after that will things be ready to grow. Now that relates to three different dimensions of the spiritual worlds. The walled city is an analogy for the world of Bria, which is That's a place inhabited by and defined by the work, uh, the service of Hashem of these tremendously great spiritual beings called Srafim, who literally spontaneously combust in connection and bittle to Hashem. Ir Gedoyla, the great urban city, that's Oilam HaYetzirah, that refers, or that is an analogy for the world of Yetzirah, and that is the place where the spiritual beings that inhabit and that, that, that represent what the service of Hashem is, in that world is Chayis HaKodesh, who have a tremendous enthusiasm for connection to Hashem. Okfar in the village, that's Oilam our reality, the lowest world, which is represented by the Avoida of these spiritual beings that are, so to speak, almost circular almost like wheels which uh, we'll see in a moment what that implies we're going to focus more on what the three of these represent in human experience and how we serve Hashem the person who's living in that protected walled city 
is a person who has a solid intellectual relationship with Hashem. Somebody contemplates Hashem's greatness and grasps Hashem's greatness in a profound way. Because of that great grasp of what they bestow is, the person has tremendous pleasure from serving Hashem and from understanding about Hashem. And that's Bedugmas Kena Avedas Hasrafim. That's very similar to the experience of the Srafim who, Shalidas, Agosim Bedikos, because they have such an insight into what they wish is. Srafim Oimdimima, as the Pasuk in Yeshaya says. The Srafim stand with a perception of that which is even beyond the Kiseh HaKavod, even beyond certain dimensions of what we as humans, or specifically as, as um, Nevi'im, can perceive. They get completely consumed in a, in a tremendous yearning to the Ebushter, which is like fire that allows them to lose everything but their connection to Hashem. A person who experiences the urban experience of relationship to God, where you turn your world into Hashem's city, that's a person who has very developed midos, very developed emotional attachment to Hashem, which is Ahav Hashem Hashem. A very profound love towards Hashem and a tremendous awe of Hashem. And that's a shaykhus lo'ilma yetzira. That is related to the world of Yetzirah. Because the world of Yetzirah is a dimension where you primarily experience Hashem's midos. Which explains why the Chayis HaKadosh, as we say in our davening, they serve Hashem with a tremendous noise, which implies this massive emotion. As would happen to a person who has an extreme intense emotion happening inside of themselves, they can't contain themselves. But when you get to the basement where we live, the world of Asiya, where the spiritual beings are called Ifanim, they're the way that they serve Hashem. It's acknowledging, I don't really understand it fully, I don't even have a developed emotional attachment, but I acknowledge that it is what is most important, so to speak, to dedicate to and connect with. In other words, for the Ifanim, or for those beings who live in the world of Asiya, the developed intellect and the mature emotion is only developed to the point of acknowledgement. I know enough to acknowledge that Hashem is great and therefore I should be dedicated to Him and I know enough to appreciate or I feel enough to appreciate that that's actually what I should be doing. Even though they are also described as serving the Ebishter with a tremendous amount of noise and, and action and, and drama, that's not because of emotion. It's the ooing and owing of the villager who comes to the palace and he can't keep his mouth shut because he's just so overwhelmed by the experience. So basically at this point we realize that the Bnei Akforim, what they represent in spiritual terms, are pretty much the bottom of the barrel. So there, unfortunately, these individuals or spiritual beings living in the world of Asiya, they don't actually feel a godly experience. It doesn't envelop their minds or ignite their hearts. So really, all they really are able to translate their awareness of Hashem into is acknowledgement and therefore action. Nevertheless, within their behavior and their action and their dedication to Hashem, you see bittel. You see a complete submission, surrender to Hashem. 
In fact, when a person has that level of bitul tashem, which is, I just acknowledge, I acknowledge that Debeshter is true and worthwhile, and therefore there's nothing else I should be doing except what Debeshter wants. There's a certain element of that bitl surrender which is more profound than the bitl of the strafim angels who are literally combusting in godly connection. Because what precipitates the great enthusiasm and dedication of the strafim? Profound understanding. That's what's an interesting thing, that the Yufanim are able to draw down Hashem's glory, which is effectively a type of divine revelation, from its original, truest place, in a way that even the Srafim are unable to achieve. That's why the Mishnah starts first talking about reading the Megillah on the 11th, which is Kriyas Bnei The reading, or Kriya, also means the calling of those in the villages. The Because the story of the villager on the 11th of the month is the heart of what the Megillah is all about. The way you look at it, you look at a villager, huh, nothing to see here. Esther, whatever value there is, is completely hidden. Because his experience of godliness doesn't have any revealed, clear, dynamic experience. But the irony is that this person plugs into Hashem's essence, which could never be revealed in the first place. When I just have that bitl and say, I'm going to do, even though I don't really understand and I don't really feel, that connects to Hashem's essence even more than the person who Now that we've seen this link between this parasha, or this Shabbos at least, which is the 11th of the month, and the whole theme of Purim, we'll now link it We'll link it back to the parasha that is typically the, the read on the Shabbos before Purim, which is parasha's Tetzaveh. What's unique about Parshas Tetzaveh, as we all know, Parshas Tetzaveh, Parsha Yechidim Mishosh and Noilad Moshe. This is the only Parsha from when Moshe Rabbeinu is born. Change Moshe Moshe Rabbeinu Niskarbo without Moshe's name in at Mishnah Torah until we get to Moshe himself speaking at the end of Parsha in Devarim. Why did that happen? Kibir Chazal Chazal explained because after the Egel Hazohav, when Hashem threatened Chas the Jewish nation. Moshe said, in that case, take me out of here. And if a tzaddik says something, it's going to happen, even if it's in small measure. So his name is not absent from the whole Torah, but it's absent from this parasha. Now, very much like we said, oh, Hashem's name is absent in the Purim. Sounds like that's a bad thing. You're going to think Moshe's name is missing from the parasha. Sounds like a bad thing. A superficial reading of this situation would, imp- would imply, The lack of Moshe's name in the parasha sounds like a... Less than positive thing. But once we know the principle for Gemara Psachim that the Torah is going to be careful not even to speak negatively about an impure animal, move on. You could for sure deduce the intention of deleting Moshe's name from the parasha was not intended for negative, but to the contrary, for a positive, not only for a positive reason, but for an ultimate reason. 
You can actually see it in the parasha itself. You don't have to philosophize. Because even though Moshe's name, the word Moshe, does not appear in the parasha. The whole parasha is called you. Who's the you will instruct? Who's the you? Moshe. As many of the Mephoshim name it. <laughs> even more directly linked at Moshe. That's obviously speaking about Moshe himself. How could that be? How could the parasha that's missing Moshe's name actually express Moshe so greatly? As was said, the explanation is because Tzadikim Domin Aboram. Tzadikim are similar to their creator. As we've already said, the various names of Hashem relate to various types of finite divine revelation. Whereas Hashem's essence obviously is beyond any name and any description. The same applies to Tzadikim. So Moshe, the name, even Moshe Rabbeinu, which is this great title that we give him, that represents a finite dimension of who Moshe is. But Moshe's essence has no name. So let's examine why is Moshe's name absent from Parsha Tetzaveh. Because the answer would be because this Parsha is the one that speaks about Moshe's essence which is way beyond what could be described or captured by any of his names. In the same way as you could say the essence of the Neshama is higher than any of the names, the five names attributed to the Neshama. Now, when you're looking at Moshe, not as he fulfills the role of redeemer or teacher or uh, communicator between God and us, but it's you yourself, out of the essence of Moshe. It's Moshe's essence that can facilitate real connection amongst the Jewish people and between the Jewish people as and Hashem. Which includes those Jews who rebelled by making an eagle. That's the whole reason Moshe said, take my name out of the Torah, because he was protecting those Yidin who had made an eagle as of. And what does that Moshe facilitate for them? He creates the possibility of those Jews having Complete connection, not only to Hashem in a generic sense, but specifically connection to Hashem's essence, as is explained elsewhere in Chesidus. We'll conclude by now linking the message of the Megillah being read on the 11th of the month, which tells us the simplest part of the community, the simplest Jew, the parts that seem to be absent of godliness actually have a connection to the essence. We'll link that to Parsha Zohar. The Shalom Kodesh tells us, The number 11 corresponds to Vav and Hey, the last two letters of Hashem's name, which equal 11. And then the other end of the spectrum, so the Megillah starts to be read on the 11th, that's Vav K. And the last date to read the Megillah is on the 15th, that's Yud K. Therefore, the Megillah, first opportunity to read the Megillah is on the 11th, which relates to Vav K. Why? 
because the idea of eradicating Amalek, which of course relates to Haman, who was a descendant of Amalek, is something related to the number 11, which in turn, as we've illustrated, is aligned with the last two letters of Hashem's name, Vavke. Why? What's the connection? At the end of Pashas B'Shalach, after the conquest or the partial conquest of Amalek at that time, the Torah tells us that there's an eternal war of Hashem against Amalek. And Yod al Kais Ka. What does Kais Ka mean? So as Rashi tells us, that Debish's name Yud cannot be whole until Amalek is eradicated. Hainu meaning, as long as Amalek is around, it's like Debish's name is incomplete, and the only dynamic, so to speak, revealed, active part of Hashem's name is Yudke. Pirish Adover meaning, that Amalek's primary attack against Hashem is to chop off the Vavke, which elsewhere the Rebbe explains the translation of ideas into practice. In other words, that the primary attack or the primary agitation that Amalek makes is against Vavke of Hashem's name, which is that Amalek's attitude is he's conscious of Debeshta and Dafka rebels against Debeshta, which means that the awareness that there is an Debeshta represented by Yudke, because that's Moichin, wouldn't have any practical application in how the person thinks, speaks and behaves. Again, as the Rebbe explains in the Pasha Zohar, Sichan Chedekit Chofalaf in detail. Therefore, to really do what we have to do by remembering Amalek. Which will allow us the opportunity to eradicate Amalek. What it takes to achieve that is what the Yud Aleph represents, Vav K. The Avoida says it's the true avoid of serving Hashem in a way that it affects not only our thoughts but also our speech and our action. The only way that we get to serve Hashem properly, where it's across the span of mind, mouth, and action, that's only through Kabbalah complete acceptance. Acknowledging that Debisha is. What, it, what is most important, and therefore surrendering to what they wants, the Ben Kfar, that's what gives us the power to be able to destroy Amalek, and therefore the first step of the whole Purim experience, which is to eradicate Amalek, is start with the people in the villages, the Yudalov people. And through that, then we can eventually uh, graduate to the level of 15, which represents the first two letters of Hashem's name, the very developed contemplation about Hashem, which belongs to those people from the walled cities. And then the name of Hashem is complete, and now it can follow in correct chronological order. As the Mishnah then continues, first we talk about when the world cities can read, which is Tezvav. Until you talk about the greatest stretch of what could happen, which is if Purim falls after Shabbos, which would force the villagers to read on Thursday, which is Yud Aleph, the 11th, and that's Vavke. 
And then you have complete reign of Hashem over the world because you'd Aleph, you'd Beis, you'd Gimel, you'd Aleph, Tesvav, add them all up, Oyla Kaminyan Adnai, it comes to 65, which is the value of Hashem's name Adnai. So in other words, you've got to start with Yud Aleph to rebuild the name of Hashem. When you have the name of Hashem, then you can unpack everything in chronological order as the rest of the Mishnah does. All of this will happen in real time when Mashiach comes. That's when the Ebesha will finally conclude and win the eternal battle against Amalek. From generation to generation means from the generation of Moshe, the war continues till the generation of Mashiach. Because Mashiach will fight the Ebesha's battles and be victorious. And that should happen immediately now.